What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, as you can see on your screen, stocks are under pressure with the Dow down nearly 300 points at the lows. And the Nasdaq the worst performer today as Fitch downgrades America's credit rating. The question is, why now? Should we expect another big sell-off like we saw back in 2011, the last time this happened? And did the bond market sniff this out ahead of time? Yields on the 10 and 30 years at fresh highs since last November, building on yesterday's jump. Now we're tackling all angles of this story today, starting with the first major Wall Street bank to remove recession from their outlook. B of A's chief economist Michael Gapin standing by to make his case. And if the economy isn't deteriorating, why the downgrade? Is it a warning shot to Washington? We'll ask the man in charge of public policy research at Strategus. Dan Clifton is also here, and he warns we shouldn't ignore signs of stress that are building and that the Fed may even need to cut rates to help Treasury. We'll talk about it. Plus, we'll bring in David Harden. He's the CEO of Summit Global Investments. How should investors be positioning in response? Let's start, though, with that big call from Bank of America. And we turn to Michael Gapin. Mike, thanks so much for your time and for rejoining us. The last time we talked, I think you had just kicked your recession call into 2024, and now it goes away entirely? Yes. So thank you for having me on, Kelly. Yes, I think we've seen enough, at least in the resiliency of the data, the upgrade to prior growth numbers, the very solid GDP numbers. But they're also happening in an environment where wage growth is moderating and inflation is moderating. Now, that's only happening gradually. But I think there's enough momentum in the economy that kind of pushed us in the direction of revisions again. And they were sufficient to take out the mild recession that was part of our our prior baseline. So I don't want to overplay it. I think there's a fine line here still between a soft landing outlook and a mild recession outlook. But we've we've come down on the side of relying and listening to that uh, resilience argument in the face of monetary policy tightening. Is it because, you know, yesterday Steve Leisman and I were chatting about this with Kathy Bustanchik, but is it because this is asynchronous, meaning we saw housing turn down a couple of years ago, but now it's starting to turn up. We saw manufacturing bad. We saw the numbers yesterday, but people are saying, well, it might start to turn a corner. And in other words, you know, these things kind of keep working themselves out instead of happening, um, you know, all more closely together like they might if we were about to go into recession. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, a very good way to characterize it is like rolling softness. So we, we do think, for example, growth slows down next year and the consumer does slow down. But as you mentioned, manufacturing and housing looks like they've stabilized. There's certainly evidence that fiscal spending is showing through in private sector business spending. Uh, so you could get these cyclical sectors that were really weak and retrenching last year to support the outlook and say offset some of that slowdown on the consumer level. So maybe maybe the lags are both short and long for monetary policy. But that's a that's a good way to put it. Well, the other thing, you know, as, as someone, and I know, listen, we all, but the leading indicators, right? There's so many things that are happening sure. that still feel like, I get the delay in the call, but what happens if we had the kind of the rolling downturns, but then we actually have the event, right? That's what I, I can't quite figure out is, are we going to spin this forward six months and go, well, obviously look at what the senior loan officer survey was telling us, or, you know, look at what these other signals were, were warning about. 
That's right. I mean, there, there are still concerns to the downside. And I would say all we've really done, we, we moved from thinking mild recession was most likely to soft landing with second to reverse those. And so certainly you can, you can argue how long the rebound in, in labor supply is going to go. So maybe labor market tightness comes back. Loan growth is indeed slowing. Does it continue to slow? Do we get a soft credit crunch next year? There, there will be rollover risk as time goes by with corporates resetting at higher rates. So there's still a number of things to be concerned about. I would just say, you know, given what we've seen so far this year, I just thought it was time to, to reassess the view. You know, one more, and, and the elephant in the room obviously is the downgrade here. Although, again, you know, usually that's the tail wagging the dog or we're having the dog conversation and that's the tail I guess is what I'm trying to say so let me ask you about ADP this morning again stronger than expected really interesting your old colleagues over at Barclays say they think ADP might actually be capturing the business cycle and the labor market better right now than the official jobs report yeah, I would put us on the other side of that, at least in predictability of the immediate number in front of us. I, it just hasn't done a good job in the past. Last month was a, right. was a great example of that. Certainly, I think over long horizons, the two match up and you can get similar views. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying the ADP data doesn't give us any kind of information. I'm just looking at it in terms of predictive power. It's not, not something I typically look at. Fair. Mike, if you could just indulge me for a second. We've got some breaking news from the Kansas City Fed. I might uh, want to get a quick reaction. And let's turn to Steve Leisman. He's on the news line. Steve, what's happening? Kelly, thanks. Yes, uh, the Kansas City Federal Reserve announcing that Jeffrey R. Schmidt has now been uh, named to succeed Esther George, uh, the former Kansas City president, who left in January, by the way. So this process has been going on for a bit. He will take uh, the position August 21st. Kind of important because it comes, uh, he will be uh, the Kansas City president just before the beginning of the Jackson Hole uh, event, which uh, symposium, which begins uh, later that same week. Uh, Schmidt is a former, essentially, banker and bank regulator. He was a bank examiner at the FDIC for many years. He ran a couple of small banks, CEO of Mutual of Omaha Bank, president of American National Bank, not household names by any uh, stretch of the imagination, just small banks. Um, and uh, uh, he is now the CEO of the uh, Southern Methodist University Southwest School of Banking Foundation. And what that is, is that's a, uh, a foundation that provides ongoing education to bankers. And this continues a, uh, a trend uh, over time or a practice at the Kansas City Fed of really putting uh, uh, banking regulators, uh, people with banking expertise, as the president. We don't know anything about his monetary policies. He is not uh, a Ph.D. economist uh, by any stretch. Uh, he, he's a uh, uh, it's just been a banker for many years and a banking regulator. Kansas City gets the vote again in uh, 2025, so we won't have a chance to vote until then. But I imagine we'll hear about his monetary policy thoughts over the next couple of months. Kelly? Steve, thank you very much. Again, Steve Leisman calling in with that news. Mike, I guess uh, unfairly to him, the question will really come down to uh, if he's still a hawk. Or, or meaning, is he going to te- you know, have the voice we typically see from the regional bank presidents in that direction? I would say history suggests, yes, we will. I would agree with Steve. We really don't know about his his monetary policy intuition, but certainly coming from the bank regulator background, that's certainly where prior presidents of the Kansas City Fed came from. It has a, a history of a bit, being a bit more of a hawkish regional Fed, both on monetary policy and on regulation. I would expect that to continue, but certainly have an open mind uh, to listen to his views and, and see what he's saying. All right, Michael Gapin, Bank of America, uh, perhaps no recession after all. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. 
Fitch downgrading the U.S. government's credit rating to AA with a stable outlook from AAA. The agency cites what it sees as fiscal deterioration over the next three years, including tax cuts, increased spending, and continued 11th-hour deals to raise the debt limit. The move does come after Fitch warned back in May of a possible downgrade before keeping its rating unchanged a month later. Now, in response to today's move, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called it arbitrary and based on outdated data. And while many are shrugging this off as political, my next guest warns it should be taken seriously. Joining me now to explain is Dan Clifton, head of policy research at Strategus. It's great to see you, Dan. And uh, listen, everyone seems to be focusing on the fact that we're not going to default because we have the printing press. Well, that's not the point. We just had another mm-hmm. debt ceiling show. I mean, at this point, who, of course we should expect that this could happen sometime in the future. It keeps coming up time and again. That's right, Kelly. Let me start off by saying that 2011, uh, investors took it very seriously. Turned out to be a one-time warning shot. People are extrapolating that and trying to compare it to today. We're in a very different environment today than we were in 2011. Then we had low inflation, low interest rates. We actually had significant savings out of the debt ceiling deal. And it was clear the U.S. debt-to-GDP trajectory was on much better footing. Today is very different. We're in a high interest rate, high inflation, or coming down inflation environment. And what that's doing is it's ballooning the interest cost of the debt. And so now we have a net interest cost that's rising for the first time in 35 years. And when the net interest cost goes up, it begins to squeeze out other domestic spending programs. And investors begin to get worried about what can actually start to get paid back. I get it. We got a printing press with a reserve currency. We can get away with a lot more than other people at Antis that other countries can. But this is a very significant inflection point we're at. And as you know, Kelly, once you hit 14 percent of uh, tax revenues for your interest costs, historically, the U.S. has moved into a period of austerity. We're right at that 14 percent today. Let me just tell you about Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen says when you get to about 3 percent of GDP in interest costs, you hit the danger zone. We're going to be there by the end of this year. So I tend to view this not as a political event, but as a warning shot that we need to get our fiscal house in order at these level of high interest rates. And if we don't, the Fed is probably going to have to come in here and help the Treasury out Uh, to be able to get those interest costs lower because we are not on a sustainable pattern right now. No, I've highlighted this before, that the public in 2011 was much more outraged about the debt and deficit situation, which is actually a lot worse today, but seems to be met with a shrug, even though interest rates are higher. What do you think the market is telling us? We saw bond yields jumping yesterday. It was a bit of a head scratcher. The economic data had been, you know, mixed to weak. And yet everyone's starting to focus on the issuance that's coming, especially on the long end. And I'm not sure I'm always persuaded by issuance arguments. I feel like it kind of finds its home based on maybe nominal GDP or whatever. But maybe this time's different. Yeah, I would argue just look at the gymnastics that Treasury is doing to raise the debt. There's always going to be buyers of Treasury debt. The question is what price you're going to pay. The announcement that was made today is that Treasury is going to spend Uh, or they're going to issue another $800 billion of T-bills on top of the previous $1 trillion of T-bills at a 5.4% rate to finance the government operation. They can easily go out on a 10-year and do it at 3.5% rate. They're worried about the liquidity impact. They're worried about bank solvency issues. These are the first signs that they're stress building into the Treasury market. It's just not normal. Now, I'm not predicting an implosion. I'm not predicting that maybe stocks should sell off because of this. But what I'm trying to say is what is happening is very reminiscent 
what happens when your net interest cost begins to surge and there are problems bubbling underneath the surface. And so the Republicans are going to see this Fitch rating and they're going to say, oh, we want to hold up on that government funding for October 1st. I think this raises the probability we're likely going to have a government shutdown on October 1st. Oh, interesting. And it's going to raise the pressure on the Fed to become more accommodative than they've been for the last two years. You're absolutely right. It will act to kind of galvanize public attention on this issue, which maybe wasn't there six months ago. So most people look at this and go, OK, whatever the Fed does is good, you know, going to kind of rea- the yields will react. You're kind of making the argument from the other direction. When you look at the yields, you think the Fed might need to start cutting here to help Treasury out. Just explain that. Yeah, well, I think we'll eventually get there. But clearly, yields have been moving in perfect proportion to the liquidity drain that we've seen since the debt ceiling. So as liquidity has come out, yields have gone up. That's exactly what we would expect. Same thing with the dollar strengthening, so to speak. What's going to happen is that there's going to be a forward look. And if you think about 2011, we raised the debt ceiling 12 years ago today. Today's the 12-year anniversary, which I think is an interesting data point. And what happened was it took maybe six, seven, eight weeks before the before the Fed began to really step in and they started Operation Twist. So that's down the path where you'll start to see it if these problems continue. But today's Treasury quarterly refunding announcement is saying we need more debt and that there's more strains on issuing that debt, that means we're going to have to have higher yields. That means the interest cost is going to continue to go higher on the federal government. And Congress is basically going to be passing budgets to pay interest. At some point, that's going to be financial markets pressuring austerity. And there's going to be political pressure to begin to change that. The Biden administration would love to wait to deal with this in 2025. Hopefully, they can get through to 2025. But my sense here is that there's pressure is going to come a lot sooner than that. Quick final question. Have we seen any point? And my guess is no, because the deficit just keeps going up. So we're not making hard choices about paying interest yep. or funding other programs. Correct. But at what point, you know, do we start squeezing that out? Or at what point can the budget not increase by more? You know, when do we kind of hit more resistance? Yeah. So right now, Congress wants to do a business and individual income tax cut before the election. And we're finding out that it's got to be paid for. So that's a first sign. You have all of the Trump tax cuts expiring at the end of 2025. So that's going to have a major impact on how we're going to be able to do this. And let me just kind of give you one one other major point here in terms of how we're thinking about this, is that once you get into 2024, Congress is going to have to deal with what's called sequestration on April 30th. And if that happens, then you could see broader 1% cut reduction Some of the companies that are benefiting from this government spending right now would actually be hurt by that. That includes the infrastructure and clean energy names that have really, really benefited here. If you remember, the economy is getting stronger. A lot of people think it's because of the deficit. So there's positives and negatives to what's happening. But you're moving into a more negative environment as you get into 2020. Near term stimulative, but more you know, pressure down the road. And again, I think that it's worth, you know, noting that Fitch is highlighting that even if we think that this is behind us, perhaps it's really more ahead of us than anything. Dan, thanks as always for your time. Thanks, Kelly. Dan Clifton with Strategus. Bond yields have moved higher, even in light of weaker economic data earlier this week. The 10 and 30 year at their highest levels since November of last year. The two year, as Dan said, up at nearly 5%. The T-bill rate is even higher, and that's what we're using to fund the deficit right now. Let's ask my next guest if he expects more fallout from Fitch's downgrade. Uh, Joining me now is David Harden. He is the CEO and chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. What, What was your gut reaction to this, David? Well, I thought it was very interesting. I think that it plays into the idea that investors this year have really turned towards managing their risk and being active in that managing risk. 
this just plays right into that same type of scenario. So I really think that uh, the timing may be what it is, and people may subsect, you know, uh, be susceptible there or, or, or worried about it. But the reality is, is that what they say is somewhat true. Our debt is high. We have complications with the inability, uh, the prudent governance that they talked about, and the size of the debt. So um, I think it's worrying in a lot of minds. But if you go back to 2011, I think there was much more pride in individuals. So they were mad. They didn't want that to happen. This is America, so to speak. And and you're seeing the shrug, I think, because it's, it is a little bit different political environment that we're in. Hmm. So I think for right now, people need to position their portfolios to understand what their risk is. The Fed is still the driver. There's no doubt about that. They're the catalyst. They know what's going on with things. It gives bears, I think, fuel to their fire. Look, the VIX is up, credit the swaps, swaps are up, um, and, 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 and that's good. But the capitulation, we're not there yet. We need to see that VIX above a 20. We need to see that VIX above a 40 right. in order to really have the capitulation that we had back in 2011. Yeah, it, it would be fun to unpack the psyche of the public over the past 12 years. But maybe we'll try to just unpack the psyche of the markets here. So what does it mean for stocks? What does it mean for bonds? I think for bonds, they pretty much stay right where they're at and continue on this uh, trend that you're seeing. Uh, very high yields. I think the, the Fed is going to be pressured a little bit more to uh, be a little bit more accommodative. But um, so I, I really like bonds right now. I think there's a really good space for them in your portfolio on stocks. I think it's time to look at the risk. You have to look at the risk of the technology run and this magnificent seven that have went um, just really through the roof, so to speak, and take some of those profits. I think you need to take some of the risk off the table that some of these areas have and look a little bit defensive. I mean, listen, this is the biggest spread we've had between utilities and tech in nearly 35 years. Hmm. When is that going to unwind? So I think that it's really important to take a look at the risks that you have in your portfolio, maybe take this time to reposition some of those, and where you feel comfortable. I mean, let's face it, there is good data about this soft landing. The Fed has done a great job. Where you feel comfortable, comfortable, use that as specific buying opportunities to get into specific names, names that you feel very comfortable with. High-quality earnings here is what I would favor. High yields, we're talking. The oil looks very, very good. Right. Conical Phillips was mentioned earlier. Earlier, um, Tech, some of the big tech names like Microsoft, for example, very good play here as it sells off today. So, so I think you need to be very specific. How do I know, you know, you say Microsoft, Adobe, um, you know, are names that maybe people could be looking at. But how do I know which ones are safe and which, you know, you just warned about the Magnificent Seven and, and kind of hinting <laughs> that technology is overvalued, right? So... Um, it sounds like there's both a, a warning about the whole sector, but, um, you know, it just doesn't extend to two of the best performers. Well, I, I think that you, you do need to look at the names individually as, as, yes, we have had Magnificent Seven. We have had this amazing run. And if you're looking at individual names, there is still more upside, I believe, in Microsoft and Adobe particularly. So if you have to consolidate the seven to two, those would be my top two to consolidate to and maybe some good times to get in. But as a sector as a whole, tech has run more than anything else. It has done phenomenal year to date. So you're seeing today a rebalance in some of those things. Tech is the biggest sell off today, obviously, with more of the defensive names like utilities doing well today, even many names positive today. So I think that you need to look at that as an overall positioning in your portfolio from an asset allocation standpoint. Right. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to sell people on utility. They say, why? You know, there's not there's not a sexy ETF for that yet. Uh, but there will be, I'm sure, after the big run. David, thanks for your time today and for your reactions. We appreciate it.
Thank you. David Harden with Summit Global Investments. As he mentioned, oil just posted its strongest month in a year and a half. But that could mean trouble for the soft landing cab. And we'll debate how the Fed might react to it next. Plus, Robinhood, Warner Brothers Discovery, and PayPal are all on deck with results. We'll get the action, the story, and the trades ahead in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a look across the markets with the Nasdaq, the worst performer, down 2% today in the face of, yes, higher rates. The Russell, second worst, down 1.3. The S&P down 1.2 to 45.21. And the Dow down 272. We're back after this. But also stick around next hour, an exclusive interview with J.P. Morgan Chase Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon. That'll be just after the top, around 2.15 Eastern. The Exchange is back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that... That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil back below 80 bucks a barrel today after closing at the highest level since last April on Monday. The recent surge in prices has pushed gasoline sharply higher. The national average for gasoline is sitting about $3.80 per gallon. That's 26 cents higher than this time a month ago. But is it just a blip or could we see prices go up even from here? Let's bring in Bob McNally, founder and president of Rapidan Energy Group. Bob, welcome. And this one's caught people a little by surprise because we had heard, uh, you know, forecasts for so long it was going higher, but it didn't. And then all of a sudden it did. Hi, Kelly. You know, you're right. We've gotten this sharp $10 a barrel rally that many barrel counters, I and others, were kind of expecting. It was surprising as it took a little while to, to get going. Today was a bit odd, though. We had a largest ever crude oil stock draw in the United States, hmm. but crude oil prices are off today. So that's making us all scratch our heads. But stepping back and to the point about Washington and President Biden, oil settling above $80 a barrel, gasoline retail pump prices hitting the high 37s, the 378, 379. The alarm bells are going off and uh, investors and policymakers are going to have to start to reckon with something, again, many of us have been saying for a while, is we're going to have a sharp oil price rally in the second half of this year. So why is that? What do you see in the numbers? So it is not gangbuster demand, but decent demand growth, 1.8, 1.9 million barrels a day. A lot of fear about China. The Chinese oil demand data are not weak. And more importantly, China is hoarding. They are building their strategic reserves. They're pulling in well over a million barrels a day and putting it in the ground because they fear a war next year. So China needs to keep pulling. Uh, the United States demand is not too bad. Uh, not too bad at all. India is smoking hot. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so you need to see strong demand. The second thing is these huge OPEC plus and Saudi supply cuts that are going into effect, especially this month, with the Saudis voluntarily cutting by a million barrels a day. True. And Russia, 
for the first time surprising folks by actually fulfilling promises to cut their seaborne crude oil exports. We are seeing that, and that is something you can watch. So supply cuts plus decent demand growth will equal large deficits and inventory declines, and those should get crude oil prices headed higher. Yeah, and as we've heard people say, there was a lot more destocking so far this year than expected, maybe helping to keep prices lower, but you have to imagine that's run its course. And you buried the lead a little bit there, saying China's stockpiling because they expect a war next year. No question. Uh, Xi Jinping is very concerned uh, that the relationship with the United States is off the rails structurally since really President Trump. And if he can't sell growth and linkages to the United States and leading the Western economy and decarbonization and all that, if he can't make that the basis of his legitimacy, he has to go back to snatching Taiwan. Uh, and you know, you have the, the, the Japanese, the South Koreans, Taiwanese, United States, Indias. We are starting to sort of form up and protect ourselves against Chinese uh, yeah. militarism, really. And so he sees the writing on the wall. And when China gets worried, they start to hoard all commodities, not just oil. So do you think the national average is going back above $4 a gallon? No question. The only question is when. When? when? I mean, we are certainly, I think we're in the foothills of a multi-year boom cycle. So President Biden could have either a recession or low oil prices, but not both. If the economy is going to be healthy, in my view, we are certainly going back up above $4 a gallon in gasoline prices. We should just hope that we can do that while still having a growing economy. But we are not investing in producing enough uh, to meet demand in the world um, uh, uh, at current prices. No way. Quick last question on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You mentioned China's been stockpiling. What are, what's our status, especially after this energy draw you mentioned? Yeah, so, so we've been draining our reserves. We're going the other way. We've drained it in half. Um, Congress on a bipartisan basis has been doing that. And then President Biden really dumped it uh, last year. So we're at 40-year lows, about 347 million barrels, a little over 700 million barrels capacity. So 40-year low. Now, look, yesterday, the DOE said, OK, we're going to stop filling up the reserve. Even the Biden DOE is concerned that the strategic reserve is too low. And we're still in a geopolitically dangerous world. However, they only were going to take in six million barrels. They said, we're not going to do that. Now the question becomes, will President Biden resist further drawing down the strategic reserves right. if oil prices continue to march higher? That we'll have to we'll have to see. Everything with the economy and the price of oil, I'd say, you know, normally it's it's, uh, you know, high pressure. But when you're going into an election year, a re-election year, the stakes are even that much higher. Bob, for now, thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Bob McNally with Rapid M. Coming up, a chip maker whose valuation is practically worth an arm and a leg. The numbers for SoftBank's semi-unit and the big name investors that are backing it. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Intel, Microsoft and Boeing all the worst performers today, while Walgreens is bucking the trend up two and a half percent, even as its competitor uh, warns about profits next year. The exchange is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. We're in a holding pattern after the declines that were initiated by Fitch's U.S. downgrade last night. The Dow's down 242, about 50 points off session lows. The Nasdaq remains the worst performer, and its 2% drop has put it back below 14,000. The SMH Semiconductor ETF is also threatening to post its worst day of the year. 3.5% drop after what had been a pretty strong run. 52% gain since Jan 1. Taking a pause today, though. And shares of CVS are moving higher after the company reaffirmed its earnings guidance for this year. But looking ahead to 2024, they just said their adjusted EPS target of $9 is no longer a reasonable starting point. CVS says uncertainty in Medicare Advantage, a weaker consumer potentially, a recession maybe, along with reduced contributions from COVID and plans to accelerate their Oak Street health clinics will all weigh on the bottom line. Their new guidance is $8.50 to $8.70 a share. They're also throwing out their 2025 EPS guidance of 10 bucks. Pretty remarkable. Shares are down 30% from their pandemic high about 18 months ago, but maybe investors like the reset. Uh, today, they're up nearly 4%. Over to Seema Modi now for a CNBC News update. Seema? Kelly, here's what's coming up at this hour. New York City officials are hoping college students can help control the city's growing migrant crisis. They will help asylum seekers file their asylum claims, officials announcing this morning. Hundreds of migrants have been sleeping on the streets in midtown Manhattan as they await processing. And New York City's mayor saying there is simply not enough space to house them. Nearly 100,000 migrants have arrived in New York in the past 18 months. Northwestern University is facing a 10th hazing lawsuit. A former football player claims he was hazed and mocked for his Mexican heritage when he played on the team from 2005 to 2008. He is the latest athlete to come forward and sue the university since the firing of the football team's head coach over hazing allegations. And it comes a day after the university tapped former Attorney General Loretta Lynch to investigate the athletic department. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing today he and his wife, Sophie, are separating. They married in 2005 and have three children together. The couple asked for privacy out of respect for their kids. Kelly? Oh, it's too bad. Yeah. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Coming up, if meme stocks are back, is Robinhood benefiting from that? We'll preview its results along with PayPal and Warner Brothers Discovery. Shares of them all are lower today, Hood down by 4%. The numbers and narratives to know are next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. The biggest week of earnings continues. We didn't even know. We had Fitch. We have everything else going on. We got Jobs Friday. Anyway, let's get straight to the action, the story, and the trade on three more names on deck to report, starting with PayPal up after the bell. Well, they're up. They're they're on deck to report after the bell. You know what I'm saying. The stock is down today, pairing some of the steep losses last quarter, but it's still off its 52-week highs set last summer. Key things to watch in the report are transactions for PayPal and Venmo, a clue on the consumer overall, and comments on credit exposure. KKM Financial founder and CEO Jeff Kilberg has our trades today. It's good to see you, Jeff. And what would you do with PayPal? Hey, Kelly, great to see you. And I want to be a buyer here of PayPal. And yes, you're absolutely right. Just two years ago, you saw the price of it you know, above $300. So it's dramatic to see that big of a move down. But growth, expectations for growth this quarter are about $7.27 billion. That's up from $6.8 billion a year ago. But I think you have to understand that who owns this stock? Who's betting that this stock is going to come back? It's institutions. It's got a very high concentration of institutional ownership, near 75%. And I think when you talk about what PayPal was, let's remember going back to the X on top of the San Francisco building right now for the formerly known company as Twitter, 
X.com was the precursor to PayPal. So there's a lot of synergy. I think there's a lot of upside if Mr. Elon Musk decides to get a little creative about this $84 billion market cap company. But I want to own PayPal here. I think the technicals are lining up. It makes sense to take this for a trade, Kelly. I'm not even going to go in the direction of what, you know, but it, it is fun I put it to trade for you. No, but the ecosystem from the Musk from that original, because then PayPal launched Palantir. And anyway, this That's one, right. while it's only up 2% year to date, that is a good point about institutional ownership, and that'll be something to watch. Kind of the flip side for Robinhood. That's the retail investor platform, also reporting after the bell. July was the best month ever for the stock, believe it or not. It's a 52% year to date, but still down about 70% from that IPO price. We'll see how consumers traded equities and, of course, crypto, as both have resisted the threat of major downturns and face a lower volatility environment. What do you think about Hood, Jeff? Well, back at the Board of Trade in Chicago, we talked about selling with both hands. This is a sell, and I don't like Robin Hood. I mean, let's look at the largest fine ever from FINRA was delivered to Robin Hood of $70 million. Prior to that, they had fines for misleading, for outages, you know, tens of billions of dollars. The SEC was a $65 million fine. So I think at Robin Hood, yes, I think we can applaud the fact that it bounced off $8 back in January, and it's up 52%, but it's $30 off from where it was the IPO at $38. So yes, I think you, you see a move here. If you want to trade it, be nimble. But you do look at the relative strength index back in July. It was overbought. You're going to see a pullback here a little bit. But I would suggest staying away from this from a long-term investment. And I'm even afraid to trade it because who knows what fine may come out next on Robinhood. All right. Very good point. So let's move on now to what I'm just going to call Barbie, because I think we're going to hear yes. quite a lot about that. Warner Brothers Discovery post results before the bell tomorrow. Uh, they're staving off their December lows. We'll see if they're helped by the max launch. And yes, the Barbie box office boost. Also, what those potential strike issues might mean for the content pipeline. You like WBD here? I do like Warner Brothers here. My daughter wanted me to wear all pink today for this segment. But nonetheless, I think it's far away enough from that 52-week high you talked about earlier at 1765. And there's just a lot of technical strength. If you look at the 50-day and the 200-day moving averages, Kelly, it's about to have a breakout. So I think there's momentum. You're seeing people talk about Barbie. And it's not just, you know, if you think of Warner Brothers, it's not just domestic. They have international scale and growth capabilities. We're talking about Barbie going to India, Oppenheimer, all these movies that are bringing people back into the brick-and-mortar component of going to a theater, that experience. I think there's a lot of trajectory to the upside. So I want to be a buyer here. I think it'd be considerate of where this has gone. You know, year-to-date outperforming, but still, uh, on a longer metric, it has some distance to make up here. So I think you can catch that um, as you go to Barbie, maybe for the second or third time, like I'm probably going to get dragged. <laughs> you know, I'm just looking at the stock again, under 13 bucks right now and wondering if it's going to take something much more strategic uh, to really get it going. You know, e the fact that it's under $13, it, even after this incredible box office run, you know, again, you just wonder, can this kind of pure play small scale streamer survive next to the likes of Netflix? It's a great point. And Netflix, obviously, having a great year as well. So I think when you look at those side by side, they're complementary. And I'm a numbers guy. You know that. And to get a little geeky here, I think instead of looking at Barbie going up to a billion dollars in global box sales, that's not the important number. The important number is where the 50-day and 200-day moving averages are lining up for potential breakout. You catch some shorts offside, catch some underinvested, and you can have that rally. That's a dramatic move back up to that 52-week high, but it's not implausible. When you see momentum come back into a name that was kind of left to the sideline post-COVID. All right. We have a CEO tomorrow that I want to ask, Portillo's. And if I'm not mistaken, did we talk about this before, Mr. Chicago? Yes. And I liked buying it then. I like buying it again. 
I mean, look at me, Kelly. How many beef sandwiches do you think I've eaten in my day at Portillo's? It's one of the best places. I think the business plan, the strategic, you're going to find out more tomorrow on that interview. But they really have their ducks in a row, and I think that expansion is going to be the template for their success. So I'm a fan of Portillo's. I know it's a very small, high beta, very small market cap. So be careful in this name, but you got to take a bite into Portillo's. Come on. You know, I asked last quarter, uh, with, as they're looking to expand into the southeast and the warmer climates, I said, do you think there's going to be demand for food, you know, heavy foods like this? Even And this weather will definitely put that to the test. <laughs> no doubt about that. But I think when you talk about comfort food, we're always looking for options, uh, at least for us. Uh, those I call myself Husky. Uh, <laughs> or at least I was called Husky growing up, Kelly. But I think you're always going to find an option like that. And Portillo's really offers that, not just to Chicago, but I think they're going to have a great success really broadening their brand. Yeah, no, and I had a lot of viewers write to me and say, you know, I live in, you know, Florida or whatever it is, and they're like, that's not keeping me from, uh, I need sandwich options. Jeff, thanks that's so right. much. Appreciate it. We'll see how these all thanks, go. Kelly. We'll check back in soon. Jeff Kilberg. Still ahead, SoftBank's semiconductor unit is reportedly eyeing an IPO as early as next month, but it could cost investors an arm and a leg. The details are next in Tech Check. Welcome back. Arm, the SoftBank-backed chip company, is now reportedly targeting a 60 to $70 billion valuation for a September IPO. Arm licenses out chip designs to customers, including Intel, NVIDIA, Apple, and Microsoft. I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, Deirdre, because like, to me, Arm is still the, the excitement. <laughs> this stock was all the rage before SoftBank, but it buys all the rage stocks. And I guess the question is what's happened in the meantime and uh, how the IPO might go. I mean, it's been kind of a roller coaster, right? And if it were to go out tomorrow, the conditions would probably be pretty good. You think about the beginning of the year. And by the way, ARM was always going to go in the next year or so. Its CEO said so. Masasan said so in Tokyo, as well as SoftBank. This is a company that wasn't going to necessarily wait for the IPO window to open. It's going to open it itself if it can go successfully. But there's a lot at stake here. Reports saying that ARM is looking for a valuation between 60 and $70 billion. That's actually a lot when you compare it to a broader average industry earnings multiple. But like I was saying, the excitement is there. When you think about the beginning of the year, there was a chip glut and demand for electronics that use ARM chips. That was actually falling. It was weak. Now we're in this whole generative AI hype cycle where companies, they need more computing power. They need more chips. ARM occupies a unique spot as well. It's the so-called Switzerland of the chip space. So it works with a lot of the mega caps like Apple and Amazon and Meta um, and Microsoft to pioneer their own AI chips. So it's an interesting proposition. But Kelly, as I said earlier, a lot can happen between now and a month. And you look at the Nasdaq, which is down 2% today. You got to wonder if sort of this momentum and the tech comeback is going to last yeah. for ARM to get out successfully. Well, and SoftBank's had so many things blow up, you know, WeWork and all the rest of them. I'm looking in 2016, they bought ARM for $32 billion. So if they're going to call it double that over a seven-year basis, yeah, I mean, it's not great, honestly. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. 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 You compare it to the NASDAQ, right? Right. And then you also consider that they've missed out on this huge NVIDIA boom. True. Right? They sold their stake earlier this year, and they've been selling down Alibaba, which is what made Masio Shisan, the legend that he is, was that stake in Alibaba that turned into billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's been selling that down as well. But the point is that 
They want to make some more big bets in generative AI. They need liquidity to do so because right now it is really hard for venture capital, for private equity to raise money. You read almost, you know, all the time, every week about funds not reaching their target, yeah. taking longer than expected. So at least this would provide some liquidity. No, and I love how hard I am on them. Yeah, that's not a good enough return, you know, as if I could do better. But that, that, we want, yeah, we well, want to be dazzled. Yeah, they're supposed to be tech investors. Right. So the <laughs> exactly. stakes are high. The bar is high. That's true. Deirdre, thank you very much. We'll see you soon, our Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, just two weeks ago, Goldman reported that big drop in profits last quarter. But that's not the only headwind the firm faces. There is an exodus of talent underway. What's behind the departure? CNBC's Hugh Sun has spoke with some of the partners who left and got a response from Goldman. He joins us with the latest next. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen making some more comments about the Fitch downgrade to the U.S. credit rating. Emily Wilkins with the details. Emily? Well, these are Yellen's first remarks since the downgrade she is speaking today, reiterating that she strongly disagrees with the U.S. going from a triple A rating to a double A plus. Yellen is calling the decision puzzling, saying that the data that was used is flawed and that the rating change is unwarranted. Yellen is continuing her defense of the Biden administration. She has pointed to a number of economic factors that have recently come out showing that the economy is strong. That includes low unemployment, inflation being down, and recent bipartisan efforts to reduce the deficit. Uh, Yellen's initial speech today was focused on the IRS modernization product project, rather, which could reduce the deficit by ensuring that the IRS has more tools for enforcement. And Yellen's remarks have really been reiterated and echoed by lots of Democrats, saying that the ratings that Fitch put forward really do not apply necessarily to them, but should but blame should fall both on Biden and the Trump administration. And it's really become a bit political here in D.C., even while it still remains a question exactly how much impact this is going to have on the markets. Absolutely. Emily, Thanks very much. Emily Wilkins reporting. Meantime, Goldman Sachs shares down another 2% today. The bank just reported its worst earnings in years, including nearly a 60% drop in profit last month. And that's just one thing they've got to worry about. The other is a talent exodus. 90 partners have reportedly left under the bank's current CEO, David Solomon. CNBC.com's Hugh Sun has spoken with some former partners about what's driving these departures. He's here with me for more, Hugh, welcome. And you've been following the saga for quite some time. I have. I have, Kelly. It's great to be with you. So I would place uh, the exodus of talent into sort of three buckets. First bucket is sort of business as usual. you got to know the context here. There are 400 partners at any given time. Every two years, they're adding roughly 75 new partners. So David Solomon, the CEO, actually wants a dynamic partnership in which people are sort of incented to sort of kill themselves hmm. with work, work really hard to get into the partnership, aspire to get there, and as a result, some people leave. Hmm. Uh, second reason is strategic shifts. Now, we focus a lot here on the show about the, the consumer mess and how that was uh, sort of something that he, an, uh, an unearned foul on their part. Now, when you look at the asset management business, we don't really talk about that enough. They had, uh, when Solomon joined, there were, there were about five or six different buckets of individual pockets of investing for their own balance sheet funds. Solomon shows up and he says, this is kind of insane. I need to consolidate this. I need to raise third-party funds. If we do so, we're going to look a lot more like Blackstone. We're going to get a better valuation because this is fee steady fee-generating business. You do that and, you know, you cause a lot of upheaval. There are a lot of folks who made a lot of money in that business who have left uh, in, that, in that shift. And finally, uh, and this is, speaks to something we also talked a lot about with Solomon, is, you know, sort of the chaos that he's generated. He's created three different... Uh, 
reorganizations in wow. Goldman Sachs. He has? Within, within his five-year tenure, he's elevated people like uh, Luke Sarsfield, uh, like Julian Salisbury, to head asset management in one reorg. In the next reorg, uh, he demotes them hmm. and they leave. And, and Julian is one of the, the folks that we've highlighted who, who've left. So, you know, between the three, uh, you know, you have roughly 90 partners who've left, at least 90 partners who left in five years. Not a shocking amount given the number of folks. It, what is a little bit more alarming is that the heads of some of these businesses have left. And you have to wonder, you know, especially in a relationship-driven business like asset management, for instance, departures probably are a pretty big deal and, and can be hard to overcome if the client is used yeah. to working with certain people who are now no longer These there. are the stars, the faces of the business. Julian, you know, we've had meetings with him. Uh, what Goldman has said is that the people who are actually picking these investments, there is low turnover there. And it's also really important to say that there is, well, there is, I would say, it's fair to say there's a bit of disarray in asset management. They're also meeting or ahead on their targets for raising third-party funds hmm. and for uh, raising fee, uh, fees from, from management of assets as and well. And we know the last quarter was almost so bad it's good. I mean, for, for those who now kind of widely acknowledge the firm has been through some, some problems, are they, are they seeing a brighter future now or not? I mean, that, that to me is a little bit unclear. Yeah. So Goldman's so tethered to the, the whims and, and the fortunes of Wall Street um, there is the sense that, that investment banking has reached its nadir. So, you know, if, if, if they get sort of uh, some more wind in their sails in terms of IPOs, uh, equity uh, issuances, things like that, which there is some sense of green shoots, I think the stock's going to recover. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the report card that David Solomon really cares about. Right. Although maybe the report card also comparing them with Morgan traditionally. I don't know if, yeah, which yeah. is, a, that's a tough it's one. It's a bad comparison for that, for Goldman Sachs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It certainly favors what Morgan Stanley has done. And we're going to hear from Jamie Dimon in just a couple of minutes as well. So uh, he'll probably weigh in on the downgrade and the business and all the rest of it. Um, but for the time being, it does seem like Goldman's in more of the hot seat until they really sort this out. I would agree with that. Hugh, thanks very much. Our Hugh Sun reporting. That does it for the exchange today. For more analysis on the markets and the economy. You can always sign up for my newsletter by using that QR code on your screen or head over to cnbc.com slash newsletters. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.